those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. I'm Mexi, and this is a show about a wide range of topics, just about anything we'd like to talk about, really, but always from a leftist, anti-capitalist, radical vegan, and just all in all, emancipatory perspective. So if you're new here, I typically co-host this podcast with my very best friend, Maureen, a privileged vegan. However, uh, as I said last time, we had some timing issues for the last few weeks. So first, Maureen was in Spain attending a conference, and then I am going to be traveling this week to Europe for three weeks also to attend a conference and as I said last time the last week of June Maureen and I are actually going to be together for once in our lives <laughs> um, in France together so it's really exciting but uh, that meant that we had a few weeks where <laughs> we just couldn't line up so Last week, I interviewed Josh Walker from the YPG about Rojava, and this week I have a wonderful interview with Becky Ellis, who is a PhD candidate in geography at the University of Western Ontario. We had a really, really exciting talk about bee decline and the whole insectageddon crisis and capitalism and bee autonomy and multi-species commons, and I just found it all so fascinating. I think that you all are really going to like it, so <laughs> get excited for that. I'm actually pre-recording this before I leave for Europe, so... In case there's some kind of explosive reaction to my interview with Josh on Rojava, um, I'm not ignoring it. This has just been pre-recorded. So if there is that kind of reaction, I will address it in the next episode. But I have a feeling people are going to like that interview as well. So I'm just saying that who knows? Who knows what's going to happen within the next two weeks? So before we get into the episode, I would like to shout out Omar, who very generously increased their pledge on Patreon, their monthly pledge. Omar is a good friend of ours. So thank you so much, Omar. And if you would like to support the show, once again, you can sign up to be a monthly Patreon donor, patron. <laughs> I always confuse those words. Um, on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com, or you could throw us a one-time donation via PayPal, also on the website, or you could just share the episode with friends or family, or rate and review us on iTunes or whichever app you listen to the show on. So, without further ado, let's get into the interview. So Becky, welcome to the show. 
Thank you for having me. So excited to have this conversation. Um, okay, so first of all, just to start, could you maybe give our listeners a bit of background about yourself, just kind of introduce who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am a PhD candidate uh, in human geography, and I'm studying the relationship between people and bees in cities, looking at both honeybees and native bees. Before I did that, I um, was doing various work in the community as a permaculture educator and practitioner. Uh, for a while, I ran a children's garden program. And before that, I did my master's in anthropology. So kind of anthropology is my um, kind of my background in terms of my training mm-hmm. um, about community gardening and the role that gentrification plays in, in community gardening. Mm. But I grew up on a farm and I've always loved being around uh, non-human nature and animals. Um, we didn't have bees on my farm, but uh, because I've always been someone who's been interested in growing my own food, mm-hmm. uh, I've always interacted with bees in that way mm-hmm. in garden space. And I think when I really started to become more aware and concerned about bees was actually many years ago, mm-hmm. probably 15 or 16 years ago, when um, someone in my community garden told me that her husband had killed a nest of um, ground nesting bees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was like, so you don't have to worry because I had little children at that time. And she's like, you don't mm-hmm. have to worry that the, the, the kids will be fine. And I was really horrified and upset <laughs> <laughs> that he had poisoned this um, nest of bees. Oh, wow. It was some sort of native solitary bees, but probably living in a kind of in a group together. Mm-hmm. And I was really upset and it shocked me that someone who was interested in gardening mm-hmm. would kill bees that mm-hmm. are actually mm-hmm. quite helpful in a garden. So mm-hmm. I think that's when my interest in bees and kind of realizing that some people are really uncomfortable with them and will kill them mm-hmm. came about. Yeah. And 15, 16 years ago, I, I feel like that was before kind of everything's been coming out of the news lately about bee decline and there's this whole kind of panic about bee yeah. populations. That was a little bit before that started happening. Yeah. So. It was really, I think, around 2007 when in United States there was um, a huge loss of bees, happened of honeybees happening that, that mm. beekeepers started noticing, mm-hmm. that people called colony collapse disorder. And that particular phenomenon has died down, mm-hmm. but honeybees face a lot of, of problems with their health, and then native bees are in quite a lot of decline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that kind of feeds into the first question here that, um, that, yeah, I feel like generally the population is aware that bees are in decline and that this could be potentially, this could have a lot of bad implications for us because we need them as our pollinators. But I think that's where the conversation typically ends for most people. So uh, I was hoping, or I was wondering if you could explain a bit about why bee populations are in decline and what implications this will have for us. Sure. So there are multiple factors in the decline of of bee populations. Mm -hmm. So I like to think of it as um, non-honey bees, or I'll call them wild bees, are in decline in terms of their population across many species. Mm -hmm. And honey bees are in very 
core health, I would say. And it's a lot of the same reasons why. So there, there, there is a problem um, with the way that industrial agriculture uses landscape. So monocultures of crops, um, most bees can't live very well with those landscapes. There's been a real increased um, use of pesticides. So there's one particular class of pesticide called neonicotinoids, which I know we'll talk about further, that are quite harmful to bees and all other insects. But also the um, widespread use of herbicides has um, killed off a lot of wildflowers in, in farming areas. Um, and so that means that there's very little forage. So we already have, you know, not a lot of habitat, not a lot of forage, mm-hmm. habitat, especially for wild bees. And then we have a widespread use of pesticides. Um, there's also um, potential problems with climate change. And so unpredictable extreme weather can cause a whole lot of problems for both honeybees and wild bees. But wild bees in particular, um, some species of solitary bees have very special relationships with certain plants. And so they, it, they kind of time themselves when they emerge to emerge when those plants bloom. And if those plants aren't in bloom because the weather has been strange, mm-hmm. um, then that can cause a, a huge problem in their population that mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is that there has been widespread spreading of parasites. Mm-hmm. It's especially true for honeybees. Um, there's a lot of parasites and pathogens. Some of that can spread to wild bees. And they're also on a very smaller scale, managed bumblebees used in greenhouses. Mm-hmm. And some of those bumblebees also have more pathogens and then escape and spread to the wild bumblebee population. So mm-hmm. those are all the different factors. They interact with one another. There's a, been a lot of evidence that certain pesticides are harmful, but especially in relationship with certain other chemicals that bees would encounter. So mm-hmm. it's kind of in terms of um, pesticides and other chemicals, it's a kind of a toxic soup that they're encountering. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah so, so it's a lot yeah. of problems. A lot of it comes back to industrial agriculture, mm-hmm. although not entirely. Mm-hmm. And there's many potential problems with the decline in the bee population. So one thing is that it's not just bees that are in decline, it's most pollinators, um, if not all. And then also it's it's insects as a, as a whole you know, group of animals. Mm -hmm. So there's been some recent studies, one from Germany, um, where scientists were looking at insect populations in uh, a nature reserve over 30 years. And over that 30 years, they found a 75% decline in almost all insect populations across all species. So, you know, there's a huge, yeah. So there's a really huge potential problem with insects as a whole group. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the same reasons why I think. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just that, you know, humans will suffer because bees pollinate about 30% of our food. And especially the food that gives us micronutrients that are really important for us to have, you know, a really healthy, flourishing um, life. Mm-hmm. But it's also that bees and other pollinators pollinate about 87.5% of all flowering plants. Mm-hmm. So it's not just food for us, but it's mm-hmm. food for so many other species of animals and 
with climate change, you know, so many species of animals are, you know, suffering or on the decline. And so then if they have lack of, of food, that's just going to make things a lot worse for them. Right. So this could have far reaching implications across ecosystems. Like- yes. <laughs> yeah. Very far reaching implications across ecosystems. So I think it's a really serious issue and not oh. just because, you know, it threatens to impact um, human agriculture, but because it can really cause some ecosystem collapse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad to see that it's at least been in the news, right? Like yeah. people are at least waking up to it. But yeah, it yeah. seems like a really, really serious issue. So you write that in the context of wild bee decline, the use of honeybees in pollination can be considered a biological override to mask the accelerating contradictions of capitalist industrial agriculture. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what you mean by this and talk a bit more about the political economy of industrial beekeeping? Sure. So um, my supervisor, uh, Dr. Tony Weiss, has written a book and written a lot um, on the this issue of the way that the accelerating contradictions of industrial agriculture, he talks a lot of industrial livestock agriculture, Mm. is causing a whole bunch of problems. And what they're doing is they're having all these kind of overrides to deal with the problems, but then it's causing more and more problems. Mm -hmm. So he wrote a book called The Ecological Hoofprint about that in terms of industrial livestock agriculture. And we're working on a paper together about... um, pollination and bees. So it's partly using the his concepts and applying it to pollination and bees. And so basically, there's a lot of contradictions that emerge in the way that industrial agriculture uses pollinators, or uses pollination. For, you know, the whole existence of human agriculture, um, we have relied on pollinators. But a lot of times, um, it was just kind of the pollination that happens in ecosystem. Um, There's many different kinds of animals that pollinate. Mm -hmm. And it was something that was more mutually beneficial. So humans, you know, created landscapes that um, pollinators enjoyed living in Mm -hmm. um, and enjoyed getting forage from. And then in return, we got this this great pollination of our of our crops. But what's happened in the past, you know, 100 years is that industrial agriculture has really grown exponentially and really relied on these monoculture landscapes with a high input of pesticides. And this has caused some problems for the need for pollination. Mm. So you can have these monocultured um, fields filled with even something that um, animals pollinate, such as tomatoes. Uh, So bumblebees like to pollinate tomatoes. Uh, But monocultures are not great for wild bees, especially. Mm -hmm. So wild bees don't fly very far from their nest. Bumblebees fly a little further, but other the many other kinds of, of wild bees that exist, so there's thousands and thousands in the whole world, they don't fly very far from their nest. So in a monoculture landscape, and especially one that's plowed and tilled, which they basically all are, mm-hmm. they won't go very far. So they can't really pollinate those types of landscapes. Mm-hmm. And in monoculture landscapes, um, they're also, farmers also, you know, try to eradicate all the wildflowers, the weeds. Mm-hmm. And so they do that sometimes manually annually with by plowing or tilling, but often by using herbicides. And so there's actually no forage nearby either. Mm-hmm. So it's offering these wild bees very little habitat. It's offering them very little forage. And they, they generally don't thrive in those situations. And so in order to overcome that, 
what has really grown alongside industrial agriculture is this commercial beekeeping industry that offers pollination services. So when people think about beekeeping, they often think, well, the way that a beekeeper makes your livelihood is through the products of the hive, the honey and the beeswax. Mm-hmm. It's not true at all. Actually, the way they make their, their livelihood, large-scale beekeepers, is through offering pollination services. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because um, with this monoculture landscape, Wild bees um, don't really exist very well in those landscapes, and so honeybees have to be moved in. And also when you have, um, with almond, the almond crop in California, you have about a million acres mm-hmm. of one crop, and it comes into bloom at the same time. And so not only are there very little native bees there, or wild bees there to, to pollinate, um, but you need a lot of bees. Mm-hmm. So actually the almond um The almond industry has become one of the largest industries that use honeybees as as pollinators. So about 2 million colonies are shipped into California when almonds come into bloom. Mm -hmm. Um, They're shipped there. They're there for about four to six weeks. And those honeybees are only getting food from from that from the for the almonds. That's, so their their diet's not that great because mm-hmm. it's not diversified. Mm-hmm. They might be exposed to some pesticides because mostly it's you know conventionally farmed almonds, mm-hmm. um, and they have to be all shipped in. So you know there's they're shipped in from all over the United States mm-hmm. on like huge transport trucks. And so two million colonies, each colony would probably have about fifty thousand bees. So you know that's many bees. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the ways that that kind of uh, the industrial agriculture system has created, you know, needs pollination. Mm-hmm. Then it's created this huge problem mm-hmm. um, with not having enough pollinators in the wild. Then it shifts in these honeybees, mm-hmm. but then it's making the honeybees unhealthy. So there's yeah. been more and more studies, although I would say there are very few studies um, being done on the impact of um, migratory commercial pollination, the, the mm-hmm. services. There's been very few studies sh- showing the impact that has on the honeybees themselves. Mm-hmm. Some of the information we have is self self reported, voluntary, and you know, as someone who has an anthropological background, you know. The, the larger kind of uh, enterprises or people with more power are less likely to kind of want people to know what their practices are, what's mm-hmm. happening with them. So mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of great statistics on the impact of honeybees on pollinating landscapes like this. Mm-hmm. But what we are seeing is that, you know, they have more um, stress that they encounter. They have um Weaker immune systems, more queen failure, more summer losses, which is, it's unusual to have a summer loss of a honeybee colony, mm-hmm. um, but they tend to have more summer losses because they're, you know, they're, they're not as healthy at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. And so then it creates this other problem. And, and migratory beekeeping also potentially is spreading uh, very rapidly a lot of these parasites and pathogens mm-hmm. that honeybees are, are exposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, if you were to ask be any beekeeper mm-hmm. what the biggest problem is when it comes comes to honeybees, they might talk about pesticides, um, but they will likely talk about mites, varroa mites, which is, um, you know, an insect that in some ways can exist within a bee colony, Mm -hmm. but when there's too many of them, they can kill a bee colony. Mm -hmm. And right now, you know, they're they're endemic to honeybees in... um, especially North America, but also to a certain extent Europe. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem for small-scale hobbyist beekeepers and a problem for the commercial ones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, those are spread very rapidly, the mites and other pathogens that honeybees encounter 
because bees are moved all across countries and mm-hmm. continents even, mm-hmm. um, which spreads them way more rapidly than they ever would spread in the wild. Yeah. I find that just horrifying. <laughs> Personally, <laughs> um, I actually, I don't know if you've seen the movie Terra. It's a documentary, this environmental no. documentary. But this is the first time that I actually saw what was going on in California with the almond harvest. And yeah. oh, to get a visual of this is just really quite scary. And they actually show showed that they were, you know, bussing in all of these bees to pollinate. And I just felt just, just simply horrified. Um, I guess because my background, I look at neoliberal conservation. So mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of parallels in terms of these problems or these environmental problems are caused through, you know, capitalist processes. And then to solve them, you know, instead of that threatening the viability of those enterprises into the future, they just find new ways to capitalize on the degradation. So we're going to capitalize on fixing the degradation in, in, you know, X, Y, or Z way, but it just, it just keeps compounding the problem into the future, right? So it never really actually solves the contradiction. It just kind of postpones what's happening. And so now we have all of these industries that have so much control over these pollinators that are so important to us and they are declining in health very rapidly. So how is this a a sustainable model in any, in any sense of the word? Yeah, I would say large scale commercial beekeeping is not sustainable at all because then what they're doing, um, the the really large scale operations is they are, you know, treating the bee, the honeybees with miticides, with fungicides, they're using ther- therapeutically antibiotics, which is, I mean, a huge problem when it comes to other farmed animals, the use of an- antibiotics in that way. Mm-hmm. And so then these miticides and fungicides are just this, just adding to this toxic soup that honeybees encounter and making them weaker and, you know, in, in even worse health. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's this huge industry that's growing with, you know, the breeding and selling of uh, queen bees, um, shipping queen bees all across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, quite a huge industry with replacing um, colonies when they die. So, you know, when the colony dies, then the beekeeper will quite rapidly replace that colony. Mm-hmm. And there is huge industry around that too. So all these industries have popped up. Mm-hmm. I find it disturbing. Um, I'm a member of the Ontario Beekeepers Association. And um, and they've done some great um, work on on the, the banning of neonicotinoids. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you see like ads in them. And sometimes it's, it's ads for different um, products used in the hive. And some of those uh, there was one in particular where it's an ad from, um, I believe, Bayer's Crop Science, who makes neonicotinoids, but, mm-hmm. you know, promoting something else that they were doing. And you just get this sense of how especially commercial beekeepers are completely embedded in this, you know, industry that mm-hmm. they it would be really hard for them to, or if not impossible for them to get out of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, a huge problem. And, you know, then, then it, it causes this kind of antagonism to a certain degree between people who are advocates for native bees and people who are advocates for honeybees. You mm-hmm. see that sometimes in cities mm-hmm. where there's not this large scale commercial beekeeping happening, but mm-hmm. where people are concerned that honeybees are driving out native bees and, you know, looking at some of what's happened in the countryside. And I mean, I would argue as someone who um, loves both mm-hmm. <laughs> that, um, you know, it's these, it's these de- de- degraded landscapes that mm-hmm. neither of these types of bees or any of these bees can flourish in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 
you know, in many ways, honeybees have been brought in as a rescue po- pollinator mm-hmm. for the agricultural system, but that they are also suffering in it. And, you know, the decline of native bees and wild mm-hmm. bees has happened before, yeah. you know, honeybees are, are brought in like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we really need to do is change the types of landscapes we have. But mm-hmm. of course, that's a, a yeah. really large issue. Of yeah. How do we change the whole capitalist the industrial whole agriculture system? <laughs> <laughs> Something will return to. Yes. So you just mentioned a bit about the the political economy of, I I cannot pronounce this, (laughs) neonicotinoid pesticides. So how have companies played a role in dampening movements to legislate against the use of these pesticides? So neonicotinoids have been around since about the mid-90s. So 1995, they've been introduced into Canada. Now they are widely used, especially on soy and corn. Um, And as probably your listeners know, most of the soy and corn growing in the world, but most of the soy and corn growing in Canada is growing to um, feed livestock, so Mm -hmm. to feed cows and pigs and chickens. So it's not used directly to feed people. Mm-hmm. So which is also confused, very unsustainable. Which is very, it's very unsustainable, <laughs> and it's very annoying when people uh, here. You've probably had this happen, but people um, are talking about the problems with, for example, soybean yeah. um, a- agriculture, and they are kind of blaming like vegetarians and vegans. Like mm-hmm. it's not being made into tofu. Like the soybeans right. in this area are not being made into tofu. Right, they're being made into um, food for cows. Right, but anyway. <laughs> So now it's very widespread use. So about about 90% of corn seeds are infused with neonicotinoids in Canada and about 66% of soybean seeds. Um, So it's very widely used. Mm -hmm. Um, So neonicotinoids, they are systemic and persistent. So systemic means that... um, the, the neonicotinoid can be found in all parts of the plant. Mm-hmm. So if it's infused in the seed, it will be in the nectar, it will be in the pollen, it will be in the liquid that comes out of the leaves. Mm-hmm. Persistent means that they persist in the environment. So they, they show up in the soil and they show up in waterways as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're water soluble. So <laughs> these are some of the <laughs> issues. <laughs> they're a neurotoxin and that's how they mm-hmm. um, kill insects as, you know, they're a neurotoxin. So they're very widely used. The main company that um, makes them is Bayer Crop Science, which is now um, coming together to to merge with Monsanto. Yeah. So the, the in Ontario there was a lot of um, struggle and movement to have um, neonicotinoids banned, and that's been going on in in Canada as a whole as well. And so the Ontario government in 2013 put together a working group, a bee health working group, which sounds great, except uh, about six out of, I think it is 13 or 14 members, were representatives of agrochemical companies in some way or another. So Bayer's Crop Science had someone in that working group. Mm-hmm. Syngenta had someone in that working group. Um, there is a really powerful lobby group of agrochemical companies called um, Crop Life International. So Crop Life Canada had someone sit on the working group as well. So already you have three agrochemical corporations. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of different industry groups, and most of them are, are tied in some way to agrochemical companies including some of the very large farmers groups. So Grain Farmers of Ontario also had a seat. But Grain Farmers of Ontario most mostly represents very large-scale farming businesses mm-hmm. that are um, 
you know, have, you know, thousands of acres of corn and soy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all these different groups had seats. And there was, like, one person from the Ontario Beekeepers Association, for example. So there was really one person advocating for beekeepers. Um, There was one entomologist. Uh, So... It was, real, I would say, very lopsided um, to agrochemical corporations, and they're then they're they're looking at their own products to see if they're healthy or not, or should be regulated. Mm-hmm. And that working group came out with the idea that there should be some sort of temporary and voluntary, you know, ban, but you know, very temporary, very minuscule, mm-hmm. um, very like voluntary. Like the government should not be forcing anything on farmers. <laughs> Um, so it was kind of, it did not have very strong recommendations. And uh, only about two of the recommendations that they came up with um, were actually something that would kind of move farmers more in an organic di- direction with less reliance on the technology of um, these various corporations. So, you know, I would say that was very much um, a weak working group because of who they brought in. Mm-hmm. And whenever, like when the Canadian government is looking at pesticides to regulate and they form a working group, they are always bringing in industry. And, you know, they, I guess they see that, you know, we've got to consult with the players to make sure our industry thrives. This is why the government uh, is a very contradictory mm-hmm. kind of entity. Yeah. Um, because in some ways, they very much want to see the capitalist system thrive. And so if that means that it's damaging, you know, ecosystems and ecosystems are collapsed, it doesn't seem to be high mm-hmm. on the level of concern. Mm-hmm. So, in spite of this, um, there was also consultations with the general public and with different um, different groups, like the National Farmers Union, for example. So in spite of the recommendations of the Bee Health Group, they did decide to put a partial ban. And it was supposed to be up to 80% um, of neonicotinoid use would be stopped in the province. Mm-hmm. That came into full effect uh, 2017. Um, unfortunately, the early numbers are that there was about a 25% reduction in use. And, you know, that's fine, except these pesticides are persistent and mm-hmm. systemic. So mm-hmm. that's actually not very much. Even 80%, like a partial mm-hmm. ban is not good because the way that this pesticide accumulates in the environment. Right. So it kind of needs to be a full ban, actually, in order to have right. a big impact. And there's some concern that whatever government we have in Ontario um, in the the next election, that they will um, take away this ban. Mm -hmm. So it's a partial ban. It's not very strong already. The industry, you know, agrochemical corporations are very much opposed to it. Mm -hmm. And so are these large farmers groups like the Grain Farmers of Ontario. Mm -hmm. And so there will be huge pressure if there's a conservative government to take away this ban Mm -hmm. that was already weak. So Mm -hmm. that's one of the ways. Um, They also have front groups. So... um, (laughs) There is this this website, um, really fancy, giving away packets of wildflower seeds. The website was called Bees Matter. It still exists. And some people on my Facebook um, were like, tagging me in it um, because they know that I do a lot of work with bees <laughs> and they were like ordering seeds from this company or it was a company it was a website giving away free seeds mm-hmm. they were ordering their free seeds and when I looked at the website I could tell pretty quickly that it was an industry website because it talked about we need farmers to have more forage and you know we, we, we need more wildflowers and you can do your part in growing them mm-hmm. but didn't mention anything about neonicotinoids that we need mm-hmm. to lessen the use of pesticides nothing like that so that's 
that was one of the things that clued me off mm-hmm. um, to the fact that it was an industry page. And then it, there was embedded, so you had to click on a whole bunch of things. And then it did say that it was, you know, um, these matter brought, brought together all these corporations and it was all, you know, mm-hmm. Crop Life International, Bayer's uh, Crop Science, Syngenta, Monsanto. So all these agrochemical yes. corporations, but people had no idea of knowing. It just looked like a really yeah. beautiful, like maybe some sort of nonprofit is what people thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, giving out free packets of wildflower seeds. Right. So, so you couldn't feel like really, you're really tell. Doing something. Yeah. And then it was totally just an industry kind of front group. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it had information about how farmers are doing so much to help bees. Mm-hmm. And there, there is a bit of stuff like that where, um, you know, these large farming industry groups will talk about how farmers have planted so much wildflowers. But if they are also using neonicotinoids, mm-hmm. then those neonicotinoids will be in the wildflowers. Right. <laughs> but the wildflowers will actually be quite toxic. Right. Yeah. So it, it it actually it can it actually you, if you want to help the bees and the farmers are going to plant a whole bunch of wildflowers, they actually uh-huh. have to stop using neonicotinoids. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I don't understand this partial ban, like what that would accomplish, really, because as you said, they're persistent and it, it's already in so much of the soil and the flowers and everything. Yeah. So. And so there's actually a huge problem with it. It's showing up in in, in waterways mm. and showing and then killing the insects, like the water kind of insects oh. and then leading to, you know, a lot of a de- 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 decline in bird populations. Mm. So mm. it has to it really does have to be um, a full ban. And then what other people people will say is that if we ban neonicotinoids, there will be an even harsher chemical brought in, a harsher pesticide, which is why we really have to tackle the industrial agriculture yeah. system. Yeah, absolutely. This, I mean, it's horrifying. We're yeah. just going to kill everything yeah. and then <laughs> hope that we can still survive. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, there's no, like, future thinking, but this is None. so true for, 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 for capitalism in general. Like, right, right. when you talk about fossil fuel use yeah. and extraction, there's no thinking about the future impacts. No, it's just short-term economic very, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, all right. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you could go into a bit more about the commercial honey production practices, because, you know, we're a vegan show and mm-hmm. uh, we get a number of questions around honey. So is it really that important to leave out honey uh, for practicing vegans? Of course, like on the show, we advocate veganism as a political stance and not necessarily just a consumption list. Mm -hmm. However, just wondering if you could explain the vegan rationale against eating honey from commercial beekeepers and what your thoughts are on that. Sure. So I do eat a little bit of honey from, um, sometimes from my, I don't really get very much honey from my bees, but Mm -hmm. sometimes from the bees that I um, share my space with, but If I do eat honey, it's from some sort of beekeeper I know, and I feel pretty comfortable with their practices. Mm -hmm. So commercial beekeeping, um, in my view, has a few significant ethical problems. So one is that um, they, like I said, widely use miticides, fungicides. um, And so the bees are actually in quite poor health, I would argue, have quite you know, poor immune systems, it's compounding um, the problems that they're facing in the environment. Mm-hmm. I also feel a lot of the practices of industrial um, livestock agriculture that are really so problematic, where animals are, yeah, they're alive, they exist. I mean, we have more chickens on earth than I, we've ever had at any time, mm-hmm. but they are 
really unhealthy animals and suffering. Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot of those same practices that they're using in various ways in commercial beekeeping industries. So artificially inseminating queens, like that's really widespread. Mm. Um, In the commercial beekeeping industry, they would not let a queen mate naturally. And they don't let bees really they try to stop bees from practicing or from like not practicing, but kind of living out their normal life cycle. So mm-hmm. they're really just being kind of used as a commodity, a way to, you know, get pollinations, you know, money for pollination services, mm-hmm. products of the hive, but they're not being considered in terms of the way that they themselves want to live. They're not being let flourish. They're, they're not thriving mm-hmm. um, in commercial beekeeping. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think commercial beekeeping, um, the way that they're like moved across landscapes, you know, I think this is quite harmful to them. They have, you know, diets that are really, really terrible where they're, you know, for like six months only getting or six, six weeks only getting nectar and pollen from one food source. And then they're packed up again and moved and only getting, you know, then moved to another place where they're only getting one food source. So, I mean, I guess the main thing I would say is that they are um, very much in poor health, that they're not allowed to exercise any level of agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue that, that bees actually have a lot of agency, that they want to exercise, mm-hmm. um, and that, you know, not letting them do that, not only is it, you know, not allowing them to flourish, but it also causing a lot of problems more like a lot of large problems for, um, you know, hobbyists and small, small scale beekeepers who might want to be more respectful of bees. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there are multiple compounding problems with the practices of commercial beekeeping. Mm -hmm. I heard, I'm not sure if this is true, but I heard also that when they take the honey away, they replace it with some kind of sugar water, which is also... Yeah, and it's also very (laughs) ironic because we talk about these monoculture landscapes of corn and soy, Mm -hmm. and some of that is being turned into corn syrup, Mm -hmm. uh, and some of that is being turned into soybean oil that's used, you know, in processed foods. And so in commercial beekeeping, just a very common everyday practice, yes, is to feed sugar syrup. Some of, I'm sure some of it is corn syrup, which is why it's kind of ironic. (laughs) And pollen patties, Mm -hmm. um, which is often, I'm sure, also using soybean oil or different kinds of oil and proteins in there to give to the bees Mm -hmm. um, and then to take their honey, um, which is their food source, Mm -hmm. and also to take um, the pollen as well. And so they, you know, aren't even really being allowed to um, enjoy the things that they themselves are creating, which would help them to flourish more. Mm -hmm. There's also other practices like bees um, collect resin from trees and they make like propolis, we call it. It's like a kind of glue and they glue their hive together in various ways with it. But it also has some, some medicinal properties. There's just a lot of things we don't know. So it has medicinal properties. There's been some studies that have shown this and that bees might use it um, to, like, if they have a particular problem with a particular bacteria or, you know, even like if they have some sort of weakened, you know, health in the colony for some reason, they might use this propolis as a medicine. Mm -hmm. And so um, beekeepers who are really concerned with managing the hive and making it really easy for humans to manage sometimes take away all that propolis, don't let bees have any of that because they glue it. And so, you know, it doesn't make it harder to work the hive. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of practices like that. So in commercial beekeeping, 
where they have thousands of hives. They are trying to make it as easy as possible for humans to get in there and manage. Mm -hmm. And so they're not letting the bees, you know, do the things that they want to do for their own health. Mm -hmm. So those practices are very, very common. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the people, sometimes people who sell honey, um, you know, take a lot of it and don't leave any for the bees and instead right. give this sugar syrup, which has, you know, yeah. none of the nutritional value really of honey. And there's a lot of things in honey, um, antibacterial pro- properties that we don't even fully understand, mm-hmm. but that it's obviously really important to the bee's health. And yeah. then when we take it and replace it with sugar syrup, we're not, you know, yeah. we're not allowing them to have the kind of diet they need to flourish. Right. And not allowing them to have any agency. Yes, not allowing them to have any agency. Yeah. Yeah. So you speak a lot about the importance of bee agency and autonomy. So I was wondering if you could explain how bees exercise agency and what you understand bee autonomy to be. Sure. So bees are very highly managed um, group of animals. But they're actually only semi-domesticated. And this is because unlike other animals used in the livestock industry, bees come and go. And they basically come and go as they please. Mm -hmm. And so they can really only only be considered semi-domesticated. And there are various ways that they practice agency. And so I've been talking a lot about honeybees, but I'm going to incorporate some things about wild bees here too. So honeybees, they have really complex um, patterns of decision making. So, you know, each, I think each honeybee in and of herself is amazing. But as a colony, some people talk about how they they operate as a superorganism. And so the colony makes various decisions and they make decisions in spite of their beekeeper. Um, And so they make the decision, for example, to replace a queen sometimes. Mm -hmm. They can sense her pheromones if the queen is not laying very many eggs and sometimes the bees decide that they need a new queen. Mm. Um, It's complex decision making we don't fully understand, which is one of the things I love about studying bees. Mm. And so then they also sometimes make a decision to swarm. And swarming is um, reproducing on the colony level. So queens mate with various drones and that's how she, um, you know, lays lays, lays eggs and has new worker bees. Mm -hmm. Um, But how a colony reproduces on, you know, the whole level of the colony is just swarm and that's basically where half the bees and the queen will leave and the other bees left um, will create a new queen Mm. and so it actually has a really important function in helping to maintain a healthy colony because um, what people are finding as entomologists is that honeybees um, if they're it's not just if they're too large and they're overcrowded but if they have a problem with mites for example sometimes that's when they swarm because it, it break the mites attack the bees in the larval stage so it kind of breaks that stage for a bit the, not neither queen is laying eggs for a while mm. um, so there's actually a lot uh, they're making a lot of really um, important decisions about how they want to live Um, And when they swarm, if anyone's ever seen a swarm, you have thousands of bees, maybe 15,000, 20,000, and the queen. Um, They find a place to kind of rest. 
Um, this will be this huge kind of ball of bees. <laughs> and then they send out a few scouts. And the scouts are going out and trying to find, you know, a new place for them to set up a, 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 their colony. And so the scouts will go to, like, um, you know, dead, dead hollow trees. That's kind of the um, natural habitat for honeybees. Mm-hmm. They would go to all sorts of places, though, and sometimes people have honeybees that have set up in the walls of their house or their compost bin or all sorts of places, any place that's, like, snug and dark. Mm-hmm. And so they go out, they, uh, you know, um, find different places, they come back, and they do, like, a, you know, a bee dance, which is a way bees communicate partly, to, you know, kind of communicate to the other bees where the location is and possibly you know the different characteristics of what they found Mm -hmm. and then the bees the colony as a whole whole will make a decision about where to go so which scout you know found the best location they think they'll go there's a lot we don't understand to it um there's a great book called honeybee democracy by an entomologist thomas seeley and he talks about some of that he studied that for many years Mm -hmm. um he talks about some of the ways that they make decisions so you know they very much um decide where they want to live, the conditions under which they want to live. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when the conditions aren't great in a hive that humans provided, you know, they start making plans to swarm. Mm-hmm. And beekeepers are, you know, really skilled at, at finding those cl- clues that they want to swarm mm-hmm. and basically stopping the swarming or splitting the beehive. So kind of the beekeeper is kind of mm-hmm. mimicking the swarming themselves. Mm-hmm. Um so it's and that's partly what you know for some beekeepers the practice of beekeeping is about it's about looking for the clues from the bees that they are you know making various decisions about the queen or making decisions about when to swarm Mm -hmm. um, and then trying to either work with that or prevent that Mm -hmm. and so that's one of the ways bees practice agency for wild bees um you know they they set up habitat where they want. So um, wild bees um, make their home in the, in the ground often or in pithy hollow stems. And then some carpenter bees make their homes in people's sheds and, mm-hmm. and you know, fences and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, wild bees set up their their nests where they want to. They, they you know, they want, they very clearly prefer to be autonomous from human intervention. Mm-hmm. They set up nests in places that are, can be very inconvenient for people. For example, on like a pathway where people are walking, they might, you know, have their ground nest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's how they flourish best is when they're left to make their own decisions about where they want to live. So even mm-hmm. when people who are very well-meaning um, put bee hotels in place, you know, often you find that bees don't actually want to nest there. They mm-hmm. want to nest instead in hollow stems of your raspberry canes. Mm-hmm. And so th- that's some of the ways bees practice agency. Sometimes they practice agency in just not pollinating the things that people plant and pollinating something else. Mm-hmm. I like the relationship that um, especially wild bees have with wild flowers or things we might even call weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a lot of those plants flourish because they're being pollinated by bees. And, you know, I feel like people could learn how to co-create with bees in their landscapes and mm-hmm. accept the things that are flourishing and accept where bees want to live mm-hmm. um, instead of destroying those habitats mm-hmm. and always trying to force them into human-made habitats instead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When people know I study bees and they ask me, for example, what to do about a 
carpenter bee nesting in their shed? I mean, I, I find it very hard to answer that question <laughs> in any way that's satisfactory for the person uh-huh. because I think, well, that's like, that's so amazing. Like yeah. there's a bee in your shed. Now you get to hang out with these carpenter bees yeah. and really what they want to know is how to get rid of them, <laughs> which I don't really have any answer to. Right. <laughs> um, I think that it's like living in, you know, space or urban spaces, like sharing space with bees is a really special mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you know, every day can be amazing and full of awe if you, you know, really respect these animals mm-hmm. um, and accept the way that they want to live and just learn how to live, coexist with them. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's very clear, even honeybees who are highly, highly managed, prefer to live without too much human interference Mm -hmm. and there are some beekeepers that acknowledge that and try to respect that Mm -hmm. um, by letting them live you know pretty close to the way that they want to respecting the like life cycle of the hive itself the colony itself and then there are some beekeepers who definitely you know try to kind of stop all of that and make it as easy for humans as possible partly I mean commercial beekeepers in some sense, to be a commercial beekeeper means you have to because mm-hmm. you can't have 20,000 hives and, you know, be respecting the autonomy and agency of the mm-hmm. bees. Mm-hmm. For example, bees would never, like, ship across the continent. No. If they, you know, they just can't. <laughs> they can fly about five kilometers. Like, that's right. their radius. So, right. And they um, wouldn't be feasting on monocrops or... They wouldn't whatever. be feasting on monocrops. And, and so even honeybees and- who can you know live in a monoculture landscape because they Mm do that's not the best for them that's Mm -hmm. not what they would prefer they prefer Mm -hmm. polycultures where Mm -hmm. there's a wide diversity of plants is Mm -hmm. what you know the vast majority of bees prefer Mm -hmm. so you kind of mentioned a bit about this idea of bee-centered beekeeping Mm -hmm. um so what would that look like in practice so bee-centered beekeeping, I am in that um, kind of category, include a lot of different types of beekeeping. And there's some overlap and, and there's some that, that some practices that aren't similar to each other. But mm-hmm. I feel like people are becoming more and more concerned about bees. A lot of the focus is on honeybees, although there should be even more focus on wild bees because wild bees generally aren't managed in any way by people. Um, so their populations are in de- decline with nobody um, you know, breeding new new bees mm-hmm. uh, or helping them with that. Mm-hmm. So people have become increasingly concerned about bees. A lot of the focus has been on honeybees. And so um, there has been a resurgence of kind of what we might call hobbyist beekeeping. Uh, and there's been a real interest in that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there are some people who consider themselves um, biodynamic beekeepers, who I would say have beekeeper practices, organic beekeepers um, with, with organic practices, mm-hmm. and just some people who are really trying to be very gentle and mindful of bees. So what I would say bee-centered beekeeping is, is beekeeping where the beekeeper is trying to respect in some way the agency and autonomy of the bees mm-hmm. and trying to engage in practices that are gentle and mindful of the bees and the, the life cycle that they want to live mm-hmm. um, and the needs that they have so that they can flourish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's some bee-centered beekeeping would be very hard to do on a very large-scale commercial level. And I think it's really this resurgence of small-scale and hobbyist beekeepers who are practicing it in various ways. Mm -hmm. So some of the practices that might be associated with it are um, allowing queens to mate naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's actually very important because when queens 
like a queen bee, um, when the bees, the colony decides to create a queen bee, it, you know, it means that they take a larva that is going to be a worker bee and they feed it special things and they build um, a special cell for it and essentially turn it into a queen bee. And so the queen bee, she emerges, she unfortunately kills all the other queen bees that are in development, <laughs> if there are any others, and she does really one flight in her life. Um, and that flight is her mating flight. And so that's really the only time, unless she's swarming with her colony, with half her colony, that she mm -hmm. leaves the hive. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's a mating flight and she goes and mates with uh, quite a lot of drones and has a lot of genetic di di diversity in her body. She collects all the sperm that she'll ever need. And then she spends the rest of her life in the hive laying millions and millions of eggs. So the thing is, we don't know the benefit of that mating flight. It's not simply that she's going to mate. It's that that's her only time, you know, in the fresh air. We don't exactly know what she does on her mm -hmm. mating flight. Mm -hmm. um, there could be a lot of other benefits that we don't know of her having that flight. Mm -hmm. um, and so not allowing queens to ever do that and instead artificially inseminating her, mm -hmm. th that could have an implication on her health that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And there's actually been a problem with keeping queen bees alive for as long as they used to live. So they used to live three to five years, and now we're finding in North America that they're not living nearly as long, and that they're suffering in various ways, mm -hmm. and they don't exactly know why. And some of it could be that we're not, you know, letting them have this mating flight, which mm -hmm. could be a really essential part of their health and development. Mm -hmm. And also the swarm, you know, swarming is this tricky issue because... I think bee-centered beekeeping, you know, allows bees to either swarm or to take the various steps that they take when they're about to swarm, mm -hmm. and then the beekeeper would split right when they would swarm. Mm -hmm. Swarms are really interesting because they bring out a lot of fear in people, even people who are willing to live with um, bees in close proximity. Mm -hmm. A swarm is like thousands of bees <laughs> at one time. Yeah. And they can go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in cities where there are, you know, people with backyard bees, it could all be great and fine. Mm -hmm. But then when the bees swarm, that's when there could be more of a problem with neighbors or with, you know, people in their community. Mm -hmm. But the thing about swarms is that's when bees are actually quite gentle. Mm -hmm. um, I would say honeybees are almost always pretty gentle, but mm -hmm. that's when they're very gentle because they have no hive to defend. They are just like protecting the queens in the middle, mm -hmm. um, but they're just like waiting until those scout bees come back and they find a new place to live. They're very actually chill and relaxed mm -hmm. um, in a swarm, but just the sight of thousands of bees <laughs> really scares people. Yeah. And so for me, bee-centered beekeeping um, lets bees either swarm or lets them get as close to stage where they would swarm as possible. Mm -hmm. um, I think swarms are really interesting because, you know, the bees themselves decide when to swarm. It's, 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 it's reproduction of the colony on the colony level. And a lot of times they're deciding to swarm for health reasons. Mm -hmm. And so if bees are suffering, honeybees are suffering because of pesticides and pathogens, mm -hmm. letting them swarm when they decide, like trusting mm -hmm. their wisdom mm -hmm. of when they need to swarm is mm -hmm. really important. Yeah. Um, and so I think bees under beekeeping allows bees to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, other practices I would say is letting them have their own food, mm -hmm. you know, letting them collect pollen and keep it, uh, not giving them, you know, additional food unless, 
they're about to starve to death, like in the winter, for example, mm-hmm. not taking any more honey than the bees need, mm-hmm. like letting the bees have an abundance of honey and not mm-hmm. taking any more than that. Mm-hmm. I think also um, really important practice for bee center beekeeping is to, you know, not move them over long distances. Mm-hmm. I think that very clearly that's a practice that's quite harmful to them, quite stressful to them. Right. Um, they would never move over, over their, those, those distances themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not, not doing that, just letting them be. And if they choose to move in, the, in a kind of a swarm, letting them do that by splitting or allowing them to swarm. Right. You said that you had some bees. Do you do any hobbies beekeeping or is that just I do. hobbies? Uh, no, I have. Um, so I do have a lot of wild native bees that live in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also have right now one honeybee hive. So I do do, I would say, bee center beekeeping. So when I do it, I... There's various things I do that I don't think all bee center beekeepers have to do, but I don't use a foundation and I let bees build mostly the way that they want to. Mm-hmm. You have to, in Ontario, the rule is if you have honeybees, you have to be able to pull out the frames. So mm-hmm. they, if you left them completely, they like they don't want anyone to take out any frames. Yeah. So they would, they would build in all sorts of ways. They're not at all, uh-huh. you know, they don't want it to be easy to extract uh-huh. their honey. Yeah. Um, but um, you have to, and and. Part Partly we've created this problem of all these pathogens and pests. And so if you can't take out the frames, you can't check for mites and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do let them build. So I just will have the frame with no foundation, let them build the way they want to. I don't introduce um, wax from other bees, which if you're buying it commercially, could have a whole bunch of pesticides and chemicals in the wax, embedded in the wax. Mm-hmm. I don't really take any honey or beeswax. So mm-hmm. when my colonies, there's sometimes they haven't made it through the winter. so you know, it's important to say honeybees are not native to Canada. Mm. They're native to like the Mediterranean area of Europe and mm. the Middle East. That's where they first originated. Mm. And so, you know, winters can be quite difficult on honeybees. Mm-hmm. And so if they don't make it through the winter, that's the only time where I've taken the honey and the, and the beeswax. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, I don't, I don't take any. Mm-hmm. Um, I let them build the way they want to, let them have their own food. Mm-hmm. I think there's a way to take I think about honeybees is if you give them more space, they'll mm-hmm. um, build more honeycomb and they'll make more honey. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a way to take it to kind of gently rob them um, <laughs> without causing them harm. Mm-hmm. But I just prefer not to. I, I like mm-hmm. living with them in my space. I like mm-hmm. watching them. They're really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that we can have a mutually beneficial uh, relationship with mm. bees so mm-hmm. you know we, we can see this really clearly with wild bees where there are certain ways we can create landscapes that they really flourish in mm-hmm. um, and then there's things we can do to make landscapes that they suffer in and so mm-hmm. I think that thinking of yourself as a co-creator with bees both honeybees and wild bees you can create landscapes in which they flourish mm-hmm. and then return you know they can help pollinate mm-hmm. your food and your flowers and you know help create this abundance which is good for people and is good for other animals and it's good for bees mm-hmm. um, and so that's kind of the the way that I like to approach um, my beekeeping and mm-hmm. also the way that I like to approach my, my gardening as well. Mm-hmm. So as really a co-created space. Mm-hmm. I love that. We did a, we did a episode on domesticated animals and we kind of talked about this idea of, you know, if the entire world went vegan, would we still have domesticated animals? And we thought that, 
I mean, I know that bees are only partially domesticated, but we thought that, you know, yes, not that we would have them, but that we would have symbiotic relationships with them. Like we're not going to just have no relationships with other species around us. And that having those relationships, like we just have to, we have to examine the quality of that relationship or the foundation of that relationship. We have to examine that to make Mm -hmm. sure that it is in fact, you know, symbiotic or mutually beneficial, you know, whatever that means. But yeah, I I mean, I totally agree because I think that, um, I think that humans and some animals Mm -hmm. have been living in very close proximity in relationship with one another for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And in some ways we co-evolved and sometimes when people talk about that, they're talking about the animal changed and there has been ways we have hugely changed animals and plants. Mm-hmm. But I think that humans change, have changed too. And I think that, you know, humans really strive to have, I think we really want to connect meaningfully with animals. Mm-hmm. I think that the way we go about trying to do that can be uh, really terrible, really short-sighted. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I do think that we need to have this sort of um, meaningful relationship with non-human nature, not mm-hmm. just animals, mm-hmm. but with yeah. other um, non-human natures as well. Mm-hmm. And that's really important part, I think, of being a person who's able to thrive and flourish. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, we would live in relationship with animals, but it would be in a way uh, in which we are, you know, I like to think about co-creating, but in which we're we're mutually flourishing. So mm-hmm. humans and non-human nature are mutually flourishing together. Mm-hmm. Um, a huge part of that, I think, is that, you know, and this is a this is really disrupting the whole way we've created our world right now. But this idea that any living being can be a commodity, yeah. you know, is really problematic. You mm-hmm. can't have a relationship mm-hmm. that's not in some way based on exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know, if the, another being is a commodity, yeah. it's really harmful. And even with bees, like that, some of the practices associated with beekeeping are um, there because the bees are a commodity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for example, if a beekeeper has a hundred hives and they put, you know, a lot of money into those hives, they bought those nucleuses, and if they let the bees swarm, the bees can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so if they're thinking about the bees as property mm-hmm. or if their bees swarm and then they have to replace them with other bees because they're getting some of their livelihood, like a hundred hives you just get a small part of your livelihood from the bees, Mm -hmm. then you're kind of embedded in this system where the bees are commodity. You've invested money into them. You can let them swarm because you can't lose Mm -hmm. your investment. You can't lose your commodity. Um, A lot of the rules around beekeeping in Ontario, for example, are rules about kind of keeping this semi-domesticated animal that can go feral, (laughs) keeping it Mm -hmm. like in some way as the property of the beekeeper who owns them, it, it, mm-hmm. it creates all these very strange, this very strange way of relating to them, I think. Right. Um, and some like there's a rule, for example, in Ontario that you have to have 30 meters between your hive and anyone else's property mm-hmm. line, which means that technically most urban beekeepers are, you know, breaking that, that law. And it's the the law, you know, there's a lot of room beekeepers, a lot of people breaking that law. People want to see it changed. And people are always like, what, what's the, what's the 30 meters? Like that's 150 feet. 
why why was that chosen as a number? What I've found is that people don't really know why it's chosen as a number, including the Ministry of Agriculture. But one of the things could be that when bees first swarm, they don't go very far. Mm-hmm. So if they make it 30 meters and they stay the first time, they the first place that they land after they swarm, they still stay within your property. Mm-hmm. And you can get them back and they mm-hmm. can be retained as your property. So it's mm-hmm. this weird, it doesn't make sense. It's not about you know, what's best for bees. It's not about what's best for people. It's about this kind of bees as property. Right. And so, you know, I think no living being can or should be property of anyone else. Right. Property can never be autonomous. And without autonomy, then you're not actually having a mutual relationship. (laughs) You know, there's always that hierarchy and always that exploitation. And there's some people that think of, um, humans and animal as humans and non-humans non-human animals as an idea would be that we'd live in entangled autonomy with with one another mm-hmm. and you know i think that that could definitely happen with bees mm-hmm. um where you know we are sharing spaces with each other you know maybe humans are even getting a little bit of honey mm-hmm. but uh you know bees are you know kind of living the lives that they want to live mm-hmm, that they prefer mm-hmm, to mm-hmm, live mm-hmm, absolutely so i think this kind of feeds into the concept of multi-species a multi-species urban commons mm-hmm. which you've talked about in some of your papers so could you elaborate on the concept and how we might go about co-producing such a commons yes um so the concept of multi-species urban commons is the idea that we can create spaces in cities and in countryside too, although I think it's a little trickier, in which people flourish and in which non-human animals flourish as well. Um, And that we are creating spaces where we are respecting the right for other animals to exist in them and to flourish Mm -hmm. in them. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, when people talk about the commons and we talk about um, creating commons, so creating spaces in which mostly they're talking about humans. So it's creating spaces in which people can come together, they can share, they can cooperate, um, they can co- you know commonly own a, a place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important and it's a really important process, but oftentimes animals are left out of that. Mm-hmm. But I think when we think about the commons, as many people think about the commons or thinking about um, you know pre-capitalist situations in which there wasn't a concept of ownership over land and people you know came together and used land in various ways but we forget that animals were parts of those landscapes too Mm -hmm. and we're using those lands as well Mm -hmm. it's important not to romanticize i think those um (laughs) societies Mm -hmm. but i think you know it, it is clear that before this concept of you know land ownership that people mutually existed with each other and with with other animals in land um, where everybody was, you know, thriving or flourishing, depending on the conditions that they were living under. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of people really interested in thinking about how we might recreate commons. We might get it back to some extent. And um, there's an historian, um, Peter Leinbach, who talks about the process of commoning, which focuses on, you know, creating commons as a process of building relationships with one another. Mm-hmm. And so in that context, I think it's really great to think about the way that we might engage in commoning with non-human animals um, that focuses on building cooperative relationships with one another in which we all flourish together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's not necessarily a ton of models of that, but I think in some community garden spaces, mm-hmm. I think in some things like public food forests, we do see people starting to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people might think it's very 
kind of strange because we talk about, uh, you know, creating a commons for people. And we talk about the process of commoning. A lot of times talking about um, radical democracy and engaging in, in um, creating, you know, new institutions or new ways of interacting with each other based on this radical democracy. And then you think, how can mm-hmm. you include non-human animals in that? And I think there's various ways you can. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and that you should. So I think it's very clear that non-human animals are residents of cities, mm-hmm. just as humans are. Mm-hmm. They participate in, you know, creating landscapes and in changing landscapes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're there and they're creating and they're, they're participating. Mm-hmm. And so they should and can be considered when we are thinking about how to use those landscapes, how to create new um, new forms of like community ownership or new forms of democracy, they can and should be considered. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it might not be that they're able to you know, cast a vote or participate <laughs> in a discussion, but we can clearly see, for example, um, we, we know about animal, various animals, the, the habitats they want, the food sources they need. We kind of create those conditions in mm-hmm. which they have access to that. And I think that we should, and I think that we should consider animals in the way that we create new forms of um, radical democracy in cities, especially mm-hmm. in um, you know spaces in which the animals are already there and they're already flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so that, that's kind of what I mean by multi-species urban commons. Mm-hmm. And I think that places like I think that people have become really interested in the potential of community gardens, of people coming together mm-hmm. in spaces that are either publicly accessible or publicly owned mm-hmm. and deciding together that they are going to create something from that, um, that they're going to decide how this land is going to be used. They're going to decide what's going to happen on it. Um, it can be really radical in this capitalist society where, you know, every part of our life seems to be dominated by capital, mm-hmm. it can be really liberating to come together and create these autonomous spaces that in some way get us a little bit beyond mm-hmm. the capitalism. Mm-hmm. And including animals in that, I think, is um, it's really crucial. They're already there. And mm-hmm. I think there's also various ways that urban animals change, like I've already said, they change city spaces, but I think there's various ways that they do express dislike or displeasure <laughs> with certain things. Mm-hmm. And that instead of seeing that as the animal is the problem, mm-hmm. seeing what we've kind of created in their spaces is a problem. Yeah. So insects aren't necessarily the best animal to demonstrate this, but you know, some mammals really demonstrate mm-hmm. this very well. Like mm-hmm. um, they don't have access to enough great food sources they're gonna like overturn all the garbage cans yeah. at night and get the food that they need mm-hmm. or you know humans create this like square that is supposed to be pristine and clean and then pigeons move in mm-hmm. and you know the problem is not the pigeons maybe the problem is creating these sterile landscapes mm-hmm. um, that are so controlled right right no, I, I completely agree. And I'm really energized by that that idea of this multi-species commons. I learned a, a little bit about the idea of planning, like urban planning that would incorporate the needs of animals uh, mm-hmm. in my, I guess my master's. But yeah, I, I really love that idea. <laughs> I feel like that's definitely something that we should be working towards. So you mentioned a bit about, you know, the troubles of living within this capitalist framework. So do you think that creating a multi-species commons or respecting and making space for bee autonomy is compatible with a capitalist production of space or a capitalist food system? Um, 
No. <laughs> Short <laughs> answer. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think so. I think we can move in an important direction. Mm-hmm. I think that pe- people really need to know that something exists beyond capitalism. And I think if we don't have any of these spaces in which we're trying out these new ways of being together with each other and with non-human nature, then it really doesn't encourage people to think about what could be. It doesn't have to be the way that it currently is. I think that I read, I don't even remember who said this, but you know, a long time ago, I read something about, you know, one of the the most awful impacts of neoliberal capitalism is that it steals people's imaginations, and they're unable Mm -hmm. to imagine a different kind of world. Mm -hmm. And so I really, I think the benefit of creating multi-species urban commons is that people can start to see glimpses of a different kind of world. Mm -hmm. We're interacting with each other, and we're interacting with non-human nature in a way that is not based on, you know, um commodity that's not based on capitalism that is not based on you know exploitation and alienation so mm-hmm. i think people need to see glimpses of a better kind of world mm-hmm. and i think we also need to start building that kind of world mm-hmm. even though it will have you know the same contradictions and problems or many of the same contradictions and problems that exist in broader capitalist society mm-hmm. because i don't think it's enough just to you know fight against you know, capitalism and the forms of oppression that come with capitalism, I think that we really have to think right now creatively about how, you know, what will we actually want to create and yeah. then start trying to create that. Mm-hmm. With bee autonomy and agency, I think that, you know, there are small scale beekeepers, like very small scale, who are really interested in bee-centered gentle beekeeping um, and trying to practice that. But of course, they confront... Uh, things that are completely out of their control. So, you know, bees fly five kilometers. So, you know, my home base is the city of London. Mm-hmm. five kilometers takes the bees outside the city it yeah. takes them into fields of corn and soy mm-hmm. and the actually bees don't gather a lot of nectar and pollen from corn and soy it's like mm-hmm. a kind of like a, a desert for them but um you know the wildflowers around those farms they do i collect it so even mm-hmm. if i have this you know area i have this backyard that's filled with like only organic um plants and like all this beautiful forage for bees Mm -hmm. they're going to fly outside of that and they're going to encounter these monoculture landscapes filled with pesticides i don't have any control over that Mm -hmm. even in the city you know people uh some people are very committed to mimicking some of the worst aspects of industrial capitalist agriculture so in some ways a lawn it's very much like a cornfield, you know, mm-hmm. it needs a lot of input. Yeah. It needs, in order for it to be, I guess, pristine, green and lush, I guess, is what mm-hmm. people are going for. You know, they need to have artificial fertilizers. They need to have pesticides. Mm-hmm. Even though pesticides are banned in cities in Ontario, they're actually banned for use by landscape companies. So people can still go to the store and buy Roundup, which will kill, you know, the clover and the dandelions that bees need. Yeah. They can still go to the store and buy insecticides and, yeah. and use them. And so, you know, and it ends lawns. Like a what I think what people's ideal in a sub, especially a sub, suburban area is, is to have this lush green grass 
you know, that is a, a desert for pollinators. There's nothing for them to get pollen and nectar from. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people are kind of mimicking in a way this monoculture landscape in cities. I don't think mm-hmm. in a, a city like Toronto, I think there's a lot of people, you know, gardening. There's a lot of parks with lots of trees and things like that. But in more mm-hmm. suburban areas, this is much more of a problem and it's much more of an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing where... You can be doing something amazing. You can have this community garden where people are coming together and creating this really amazing landscape for people and for insects and other non-human animals. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, next door, there's someone who is using all these chemicals and really committed to their lawn. Mm -hmm. But one thing I think that's really important is that I think people really need to develop a relationship with non-human nature that is meaningful in order to want to change those practices and also in order to want to confront, you know, the the agrochemical corporations and, you know, industrial capitalist agriculture. Mm -hmm. If they don't have that meaningful connection with non-human nature, I don't think people are going to get to the point where they are willing to be engaged in struggles against Mm -hmm. this larger system. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, these smaller projects, these smaller scale things can um, bring people into relationship with non-human nature in a meaningful way. And I mm-hmm. I think beekeeping is one way that that can happen because it's such a, a sensual experience and involves all your senses, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're trying to practice very mindful, gentle beekeeping. Mm-hmm. It, you know, obviously there's a taste element when it comes to honeybees in mm-hmm. terms of their honey if you're tasting it but Mm -hmm. there are smells there's you know the sound of their buzz which Mm -hmm. can mean different things if you're really attuned to it you really get to know that it can mean different things about them there is actually a beekeeper he's a mentor in this beekeeping group I'm working with and he can he said he can tell when a buzz means that there's something kind of wrong with the queen that the hive buzzes differently and he's really attuned to that sound so Mm -hmm. you know you can get really attuned um your body like you make very embodied experience where you're really tuned into the bees Mm -hmm. and i think that that's a really powerful way of connecting with non-human nature Mm -hmm. and then there's also the the pain like even that can like (laughs) (laughs) when you like when when you do something to a beehive you're not being mindful um, or you accidentally step in a bee because you just weren't watching your surroundings, that, mm-hmm. that pain can jolt you into thinking differently about the way that you interact with insects. It can also, mm-hmm. you know, for some people, unfortunately, it makes them go out and buy a can of Raid or yeah. something. But for some people, it can make them much more mindful mm-hmm. um, about the way they interact. So I think mm-hmm. these projects that are encouraging people to think differently about the way they live with non-human nature and to think about themselves as being in relationship Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can be really important in changing people's perceptions. And my hope is getting people involved in struggle because I think Mm -hmm. that we really do need to struggle against the larger industrial capitalist agriculture system. Mm -hmm. And so it can't just be these individual personal solutions. It has to be bigger than that. Right. No, I really love that because, I mean, I always, I've, I've talked a lot about, you know, the importance of struggle, mm-hmm. but then also the importance of prefiguring the world that you want to see. So yeah. I, I feel like in the leftist community, I guess, there's kind of this huge split between, you know, the anarchist camp and the Marxist camp. And there's, you know, so it's like either prefigurative politics or struggle against the system, right? And I think, why, why, why not do both, uh, you know, at the same time? So, yeah. Yeah. I've really, I don't know if you've ever read, um, 
John Holloway. Uh, he wrote Crack Capitalism. And he, he kind of talks about that. He's a Marxist, but he's more of an autonomous Marxist. And he, Crack Capitalism is, is, a, is about, you know, putting cracks in the capitalist system. So, mm-hmm. you know, he, he kind of like likens the different ways of organizing, you know, resisting capitalism to kind of, if you're, there's a sheet, if capitalism's like this ice, and you're like cracking it mm-hmm. and maybe sometimes it really takes off and like there's a break mm-hmm. but a lot of times it's these little cracks and you don't know if the crack's gonna mm-hmm. you know get get bigger or not mm-hmm. um, but these cracks are really important they're all kind of weakening it and mm-hmm. so he, you know, he has a lot of interesting things to say, but, you know, one of that is that, you know, even something that seems small and insignificant mm-hmm. is putting a crack in the capitalist system. Yeah. And it could be that something that seems small actually, you know, meets up with other cracks and forms a break. Like, yeah. we don't know and we mm-hmm. can't really predict. Mm-hmm. And so I, mm-hmm. I, I like that and yeah. thinking about how these kind of small things like a community garden can have a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. I like that too. I feel yeah. like it's hopeful. Right? Yeah, it's so. hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I have one more question and it's kind of a big one, mm-hmm. um, but we kind of talked a bit about this idea of needing to, you know, challenge the system. So I was wondering what you thought about, you know, how this current concern around bees could be a potential jumping off point for building social movements that disrupt and build alternatives to this industrial capitalist mm-hmm. agricultural system. Well, one way I think is that people, I think people are really aware that um, industrial cap, or industrial agriculture is um, the biggest problem for bees. Mm-hmm. So there has been a lot of concern about bees. A lot of it's focused on honeybees, which in no way is advocates for native bees. Mm-hmm. But I, people, I think people are very clear, even with this whole kind of bees matter, this like industry lobbying and the, the way that they're kind of trying to save face. Mm-hmm. I think people are really clear that it is industrial agriculture. Because mm-hmm. um, I do research with people about bees. When I ask people from entomologists to, you know, someone who has a beautiful um, garden, mm-hmm. what they think is the main thing affecting bees, mm-hmm. uh, basically everybody says industrial agriculture. Mm-hmm. So I think people are aware that it is the main problem for bees Mm -hmm. and so I think that gives us and and it is a main problem for bees Mm -hmm. and I think that gives us some hopeful hopeful ways forward for forming alliances Mm -hmm. so one way is that there are small-scale farmers small-scale organic farmers Mm -hmm. who are on a global scale organizing so one of the most prominent groups of, of small-scale organic farmers, or not all organic, but small-scale farmers, um, are La, La Via Campesina, which mm-hmm. is a movement of mostly peasant farmers, many from the global south. Mm-hmm. But the National Farmers Union in Canada is aligned with La Via Campesina. Oh, cool. Yeah. So obviously they're not peasants in Canada. We have a different model of agriculture, but they are, National Farmers Union um, represents small-scale farmers. Mm-hmm. So they're not all organic, but they're all small scale we might when people think about a farmer they think about a family farmer Mm -hmm. they don't think about these huge businesses which most farms are Mm -hmm. so national farmers union and the via campesina more broadly are bringing farmers and peasants together in i would say quite a radical social movement one that sees industrial capitalist agriculture as a problem one that sees politically organizing into a struggle, an international struggle, as, you know, a huge part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And they're doing so. Mm-hmm. And so it might be the kind of groups of group of farmers aligned with that in Canada might seem small. 
but it's part of a larger international movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that we ca- people who are bee advocates can form alliances with these farmers and peasants um, and really struggling against the capitalist industrial agriculture system and trying to create, a, you know, a new form of agriculture. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people, you know, practicing agroecology, mm-hmm. um, organic farming, organic gardening, you know, permaculture, all these different ways where people are trying to create new ways of living with non-human nature and also making mm-hmm. food for people. Mm-hmm. And so there's some exciting things being done. And then Livia Campesina is bringing people together and struggle. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that bees and bees fit together really nicely into another prominent struggle is the struggle over the right to seeds and the right to mm. save seeds, right to have seeds under the control of people instead of in the control of corporations. Mm-hmm. So it comes together in that, you know, these seeds that are infused with neonicotinoids also have all sorts of other problems. They're also genetically modified seeds, which means they have a patent. They're owned by these corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of causes a lot of problems for farmers or farmers are embedded um, in the system where they can't save and control seeds. And that's actually on a global scale, quite a large movement of farmers who want to retain control over seeds. And so mm-hmm. I think that these two movements can come together. Mm-hmm. Another way they come together is in the solution. So if we were actually to move to a system in which farmers had control over seeds again and people had control over seeds, communities, we would need, you know, a ton of pollinators for that type of system to thrive. So there Mm -hmm. is a natural alliance there because, you know, plants don't form seeds unless they've been pollinated. Mm -hmm. And some plants are wind pollinated, but many are animal pollinated. Mm -hmm. And so there's like the, they have a common enemy in mm-hmm. a sense, mm-hmm. the agrochemical corporations, but the solution is in common as well. Mm-hmm. It's like this community control over our food, but community control over our seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, seeds that are not going to grow into plants that harm bees, seeds that are going to be able to grow into food, um, that can feed people, that can feed non-human animals, that can mm-hmm. feed bees, or we can mutually flourish together. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the ways an alliance can be formed. Yeah, absolutely. I love Livia Kim. I yeah. shouted them out in my radical food politics video. So if anyone has not seen that video, go check it out. But I also love that idea that, you know, there is kind of this common goal for both people and animals, right? So mm-hmm. I like to talk a lot about how we need to start seeing animals as our allies because they don't have a stake in capitalism continuing, right? Yeah. Um, same with Marine, a privileged vegan. She always talks about that, that, you know, animals should be considered our allies because we both have so much to gain from disrupting the system or overthrowing the system, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I think that it's really important um, that we we look to creating a food system for people that is socially just as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I, I love the work of Livia Campesina because they're, for example, very, very feminist. Mm-hmm. And I would say on a global scale, they're also concerned with uh, the rights of farm workers as mm-hmm. well. And so you know it it can kind of bring us together in creating this food system that's ecologically regenerative that's also socially just Mm -hmm, as well mm -hmm. which I think is really important and you know I think that it's important not to romanticize you know pre-industrial farming Mm -hmm. there were or or, or beekeeping there were a lot of problems as well Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think the thinking forward for one that's socially just and ecologically regenerative is really important yeah absolutely well I guess that might be a good place to end unless do you have any final thoughts that you like to add? 
to the discussion? Um, I just encourage people to start thinking more about the insects they interact with. Mm-hmm. I think insects sometimes get neglected. They, I, I, you know, they're not considered like, for example, sentient animals. Yeah. But they're pretty amazing, and I think once you start interacting with insects. Mm-hmm. You know, you you learn a lot about the world and your surroundings that you might not know otherwise. And so I would just encourage people to, you know, spend some time interacting with a bee and watching her. It's probably going to be a her. Um, watching her and seeing how she interacts with other insects, seeing how she interacts with you, see how she interacts with plants. Mm-hmm. Um, it might bring you into a new kind of way of experiencing your relationship with the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so do you have, you know, social media or something? Can people follow you, your, you or your work somewhere or? Yeah, I have a blog called Permaculture for the People. Okay. Because I'm also um, a permaculture person mm-hmm. and uh, really committed to a socially just feminist, anti-oppressive permaculture framework. Mm-hmm. So I write a lot about bees and I write a lot about social movement, social struggle in the context of permaculture on that blog. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a Facebook group, Permaculture for the People and permaculture people uh twitter as well okay perfect so we'll link all of those in the show notes so everyone can follow your work thank you thank you so much for coming on the show today thank you for having me wonderful